0: Much for joining me on the podcast today. We are on the eve of winter 2020 21. And by um, all, um, all signs are kind of pointing that, and, and I haven't used this word in a long time, but we're looking at probably having a normal winter this year. Uh, the meteorologists are forecasting. You know, it's not going to be uh, super heavy, but you know, it should be a fair number of snow and ice events for uh, professional contractors out there. So, I guess my question for you to start us off today is: If we're looking at a normal winter, can the salt and deicing side of the uh, of the industry sustain that supply? And, and and what are inventories like if we do get hit with a couple of pretty large regional um, snow events in the coming months.
1: Well, uh, hello, Mike, and, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, participate uh, in, your, in your podcast. I think a normal winter is a trick question mm-hmm. because n- normal has changed. Uh, when I was first in the business, uh, which is a little frightening to think that it was 45 years ago, uh, our first snowstorm would come in Thanksgiving, and we'd have snow on the ground right up into March. I think everyone realizes now snow comes a lot later. Uh, it's showing up really January through March. Uh, normal winter is a moving target. I see a lot of things uh, that could hit the supply lines pretty hard. With the warmer weather, we're going to be much more prone to ice storms. Mm-hmm. And an ice storm consumes five times a deicer that a snowstorm consumes. Mm-hmm. With the right or the wrong setup, uh, sure, it's uh, the, from the wholesale side and from the producer side. The whole issue is risk and risk management. Right. The wholesale and and the and the producer want to put as much on the ground as they can, but they really want the market to take product so that they can avoid these kinds of problems where we have really a lot of demand in a short window of time, and they. They can't reload the stockpiles, so there's there's unlimited salt in the ground. Uh, that's not the problem; it's getting it to market. Right. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. In my uh, last state of the salt, you know, I talked about the temperatures of the Great Lakes, and they're the highest they've ever been. Right. So every time we have a polar vortex or a cold air mass roll across those lakes, uh, lakefront communities are going to get creamed. And I think this could very well be one of the record snow years for uh, lake effects and ocean effect snow if if the cold air masses drop in. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the $64 question in the business.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, I know in the past, and I know this is something you followed in your uh, when you've written for us is that uh, you talked about the transportation networks and getting salt to the snow, uh, to the snow market, and things like the Mississippi River was having some problems, and and there were other other types of. Factors that impact that transportation have some of those, you know, um, uh, along uh, you know along the Ohio River all, as well, and and uh, some things, even as some things as uh, seemingly insignificant as um, some technology upgrades and ocean-going freighters that would impact the amount of or the cost of of uh, possibly shipping salt from overseas. Where do you see some of that? How has any of that um, kind of leveled out and and rectified itself? Yeah, it's a
1: good question, and I I won't say that it's that it's rectified itself. I think it what's happened is uh, it's a non-issue because uh, the the bulk vessels that carry salt carry any other bulk commodity, steel or grains, things like this. So. Some of those other markets uh, have uh, not been as strong, and certainly COVID had an impact on some of that. So I think that uh, from a standpoint of uh, vessel delivery for uh, waterborne facilities, facilities that can receive by water... yeah. is fine and in fact uh price prices are down so uh we saw a in the spring we saw a new low in uh freight uh, from uh alexandria egypt to east coast u.s of a uh, 12 dollars a ton which is insane it's not even enough to pay the fuel but <laughs> yeah exactly uh yeah so people will see salt from uh new locations around the planet as always be wary of a deal that seems to be too good to be true because mm-hmm. probably is
0: it's sage advice when you're purchasing anything <laughs> yeah
1: right so but i don't i don't see any uh logistical problems right now every stockpile is piled as high as it can go companies like k plus s who are the largest salt company in the world at least for another month and a half and we can talk about that later uh, they are a fertilizer manufacturer. They have an enormous network of uh, ocean vessel options. And so they're able to shuffle the deck if we get a demand and say, okay, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna go to this port. We're gonna go to these ports where demand is high. Where, where most likely problems arise is if heartland America gets hit hard. right? Because the river system, as you mentioned in the beginning, it is the, it, that, that is the highway for supply. And yes, we have heartland production in Ohio and Kansas and Canada, but getting that to market in a hurry is very difficult. So mm-hmm. if you see things starting to get busy in uh, your uh, consumer, it, it would be a good time to take the risk yourself and load up before the, uh, the panic buying sets in.
0: Well, you know, you had mentioned K uh, Plus S and its sale of its Morton Salt, essentially its salt business to to Kisner Group. And that's um, a deal that they're finalizing right now, I guess, crossing the I's and dotting the T's. It's going to be $3.2 billion. And uh, it's probably something that I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we probably won't see the effects of that deal until next summer. Right. When, uh, you know, they start going to market to purchase salt, depending on what type of winter we have. But what do you th- what do you foresee or or what do you anticipate will be the uh, fallout of this deal? It's going to it's going to make Kisner the salt giant in our industry, correct? Well, it will make Kistner's uh,
1: holding company, Stone canyon, uh, right. certainly the salt giant in the North American market, will have to wait and see uh what that is it's It's hard to anticipate what effect that would have uh if any. The Federal Trade Commission will have a lot to say about any stockpiles where Kistner and Morton both have positions. They're going to pull one of those away and award that to some very lucky company, so I don't know. You know where those locations are, mm-hmm. Uh, but in play it could be maybe Hutchinson, Kansas. I can think of might be one where they will not let them hold multiple uh positions, and that's a that's a mining salt mine region. So, but again, until the fat lady sings, mm-hmm. we don't know. It's just we're we're you know it's you're taking a a blind guess as to uh to how it will go. Short term, it'll have no effect. All of the employees in Morton will will continue and and then they're going to try and uh consolidate to get economies of scale uh in all fairness and with no offense to morton uh they have a significant footprint in chicago Mm -hmm. uh and they've got a lot of middle management and i i think they're a little heavy in middle management so if i were a middle manager in morton i'd probably be looking over my shoulder a little bit right now and thinking (laughs) okay i'm what where, where am I going to end up in all of this? So, and I think there's, there's certainly, uh, uh, room to, to reduce staff and become more efficient, you know, just to keep going on that a little bit, um, K plus S purchased international salt 10 or 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, international salt was, a intensely entrepreneurial business and, uh, everybody pulled hard. It was, uh, uh, small staff for the amount of product in the markets that they served. When uh, K plus S saw an opportunity to purchase Morton, and uh, that was really the result of uh, uh, another situation where uh, Roman Haas was in a jam and they needed to raise capital quickly and sold Morton. And that's very similar to the situation that K plus S is in right now where they need to raise cash and put Morton on the auction block. So I think the the hope was that K plus S with international would bring all of that entrepreneurial mindset to Chicago and infuse that into that group and make them work that way. Mm-hmm. After over a hundred years, uh, it's that old dog does not necessarily take to new tricks very well.
0: <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit about blends and uh, chemical products that go into those um, into that segment of the market because that's also something you've uh, when you've written for us in the past, it's just not the rock salt side of it, but also uh, the supporting chemical side of this for you know packaged products and especially blends that go into um, a, a lot of what snow contractors do especially when it comes to specialty surfaces or walkways that they need special consideration for or even things such as you know parking garages and parking decks that have the uh, special structural concretes what are you seeing on that side of the market a lot of deception really <laughs> yeah i mean so uh the now this isn't the, gonna make you a mark man if you uh
1: start talking about this well i mean i'm probably I'm um, a marked man to begin with uh, because you know, I'm uh, I come from the chemical uh, production world. This isn't a complicated thing. It's chemistry. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is uh, a shift over the years. Now some b- blends are legitimate and that's not, this is not to poo poo blends. Mm-hmm. And as we have seen these uh, warmer winters, uh, salt is perfectly acceptable uh, to do the de-icing job in many cases. right? The, the issue in blends is when there are label claims of ingredients that celebrate micro-ingredients. And that is to say that uh, calcium, magnesium, acetate, and all acetates have been around for many years. They're used in airports, and they're used in areas that can't tolerate chlorides. So if you pour a new walkway, the contractor likely says, you have to use CMA, calcium magnesium acetate on this. Otherwise you'll avoid your warranty. So people go looking for CMA and they find, you know, wonder blend It's not a company, not a product. I'm just making the name up. They find wonder blend and it says with CMA on the label. Now CMA are small white round pellets. Right. And it can be put into a solution or really a suspension, and it can be uh, applied as a liquid to salt granules. But if you don't see a bag full of small white pellets, it's not CMA. And CMA is very expensive. You're, it's upwards of $80, $90 a bag. Right. So if you if someone offers CMA to a co- to a to a company and it's less than 80 bucks a bag, it's probably not CMA. It's probably salt with cma on it so coin a phrase uh you can put lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig
0: right and right. so
1: you know these these kinds of things uh have been uh personally bothersome to me because it's a it's a fraud on an american consumer and it's done by deliberate deception so i encourage everyone that's listening to demand a certificate of analysis of any product you buy. If it's at all in question, what am I buying? Uh, federal and most state right to know laws say they got to tell you. And, you know, God forbid somebody is adding peanut oil to a salt blend Mm -hmm. to a blended product and somebody has an anaphylactic reaction. So that, that would be really rare, but The spirit of right to know is you can't refuse things to people. And under the most extreme circumstance, they might say, okay, well, this is a trade secret. Say, okay, I'll sign a non-disclosure agreement. I still need to know what's in the product. When you ask someone what's in the product and they stare at their shoelaces and shuffle and don't answer, probably just don't want you to know that you're paying 12 bucks a bag for a $3 bag of salt. Mm -hmm. That's that's the the bottom line
0: is the question maybe not um, <clears throat> what's in the product, but how much of what you're saying is in the product is actually yes. in the product because yes. they're going to claim like, yeah, oh yeah, we got, it's here are the 10 things that we got in here. And, and I, you know, and this is particularly troubling for our industry because, you know, uh, a lot of times these products are used on um, walkways uh, in high traffic areas Um, and uh, in facilities like medical facilities and retail where slip and fall is prevalent (laughs) and uh, it's uh, particularly troublesome in our industry. So uh, yeah, this is uh, definitely something contractors should know about and how to, how to get ahead of it.
1: Slip and fall is the only reason we put anything down in winter. It is public safety. Uh, National uh, highway transportation safety administration has Countless studies uh, that are published and can be found. The use of deicers in traffic reduces accidents by 80 percent. Well, the insurance industry in Canada actually bankrolls and pays for the use of deicers in major metropolitan areas because it's nationalized insurance and it's a cost savings. So the insurance company says, "Hey, we much less claims if we have things deiced, so we'll pay for the deicer." It's it's pretty clear getting. Getting the right product under the right conditions is the challenge. So you have to really be aware of temperatures. You have to be very much aware of what the surface is you're treating. Fresh concrete, you need at least two years before you can safely throw any deicer on it, or you will risk spalling damage. And spalling is where you get this... Uh, fracture and removal of the surface where the concrete has been floated out, smooth, skim top, and then chunks come out, revealing aggregate below. And that's, that's a mechanical attack from freeze thaw. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, snow and ice on top of the concrete. You put a de-icer on it, it makes a brine. The brine sinks into the air voids. Overnight, the temperature drops. That brine freeze point is uh, met and then goes lower and it freezes and just like an ice cube in a tray it expands and it mechanically breaks it it's not a chemical attack it's a mechanical attack Uh, and uh, it's it's pretty pretty straightforward and easy to understand so getting the right product with concrete uh, sealed putting a, a silane or a siloxane sealer is a huge benefit. We recommend that to everyone to keep their concrete sealed. If you seal the concrete after it's properly cured, you can put any de-icer in the world on it because it can't penetrate the air voids. So right. uh brick is famous for efflorescence and efflorescence is a frosty bloom. So mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of decorative brick surfaces out there where Uh, People have purchased a brick and memorial of something and they go out and they keep that thing open all winter and they put salt on it and they look in the spring and there's this white frosty bloom forming. And that is the sodium ion is, is getting free and coming up and grabbing carbon dioxide out of the air and forming sodium carbonate crystals on the surface. If they use calcium chloride, it can do the same thing. Generally, magnesium chloride will not do that. It can't, it can't effloresce in the way that calcium and sodium do. But uh, these are the kinds of issues that the professional snow fighter needs to really consider as he approaches a property. Because if there's damage, it's coming out of his pocket in the spring, whether it was his fault or not.
0: Hey, speaking of products, I understand that you have something you're either are beginning to bring to market or about to bring to market. You want to tell me a little bit about that?
1: Sure. We have, uh, and actually it's the first time uh, there's been any uh, public reveal of what we've been working on for three years. So the the market wants the silver bullet. And the silver bullet is a renewable product that has no adverse impact or side effect. And at the onset, I'm going to tell you, no such product exists. But as we try to find some alternatives, we were aware that they were fooling around in Europe with wood chips. Mm-hmm. And so we have been working with a manufacturer of wood that has a lot of wood chip waste mm-hmm. and uh, using uh, a large Mixing device, we have infused a very small amount of magnesium chloride into these wood chips. These are a fraction the cost of salt and can be used, but they can only be really used in certain markets. So specifically, the wood chip has a lot of appeal because it's biodegradable. So that thing's going to biodegrade, but anybody that has put wood chips down on a slope knows well, that takes a long time, and it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the wood chips uh, don't need to, they're not going to get into a water supply and pollute a water supply. There's such a small amount of chloride, uh, whether it's magnesium or calcium, uh, in the wood chip that it's, it's inconsequential. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, it really is. You le- you're less than 1% or 2%. The only reason for that is it's to be thrown on a snow-covered surface, and then it will melt in slightly to that surface and then stay there and bite. Mm-hmm. So the this is not something that you're gonna throw down on a road that you're gonna constantly be plowing. You would throw it down at the conclusion of plowing in rural areas that have uh, maybe side ditches, uh, maybe a, a gravel road, places like this. But if there are stormwater management systems on that road wood chips of any form or anything like that are not the choice for you you know this is why we got rid of sand is it was plugging up storm basins right uh and choking off wetlands so the wood chips i don't i don't see necessarily that same thing but uh we're not going to be able to use them in places where uh, we have stormwater management in that way so we've been testing in uh vermont and new hampshire it's encouraging. The jury's still out. It's it's a wholesale change to the way we manage snow and ice. And mm-hmm. so uh, a lot of places, nor- Northern New England, uh, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, th- it's standard for them to drive on snow all winter. They right. don't think anything about it. But in population centers, they want that pavement black and wet. And th- this product will not be an option for them in population centers.
0: Mm-hmm. So- In your test markets, what type of uh, properties are are using it?
1: Uh, Rural roads uh, and unpaved roads. Uh, So it's shown good use there and adhesion. And uh, we're we're encouraged, but we still have a ways to go here. Because cost-wise, it's dramatically less expensive than salt, less than 20 bucks a ton. It has an advantage for the right market
0: that's really interesting because it does kind of lead into our kind of our last topic today and that has to do with um kind of the hit salt and chlorides have taken uh, from an environmental standpoint in in winter salt use and obviously when we when we look at this it is something that has been to date more of a a highway road issue but certainly this bleeds over to the commercial side as well um and, and the amount of salt that's being used on the properties and the amount of salt that is in the sense runoff and uh, getting into the ecosystem what, what are what are you what, what are you seeing or what are you hearing about this and how is this going to impact our uh, the the market I mean can't get rid of rock salt but obviously a new way of thinking has to be uh, brought in whether it's um, uh, to techniques that have been used or the technology that can be employed to more effectively put salt down but uh, like it or not when it melts it's it's going into the environment
1: yeah no there's no question about it uh this is an issue pollution of our planet is an issue it's uh topic that is uh, hotly debated from global warming on through to plastic in the ocean. There's increased awareness of uh, how our daily actions are having adverse effects on our environment and may have effects that could stay with us for decades, if not centuries. Mm-hmm. So uh, salt is one, and uh, salt has two problems. Uh, it's 67% chlorides, and the sodium level is problematic if it gets into potable water. Potable water is drinking water. So if you are uh, on a, a roadway that is being salted heavily for winter travel, could be an interstate highway and you're on a well, and you're in a, a rock area that has fissures that may be virtually in direct communication with your groundwater, people are seeing high sodium levels and high chloride levels in, in wells to the point that their water is undrinkable.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: well, this is a real problem. And mm-hmm. so w- we continue to search for alternatives. They try a lot of alternatives. Some of them are very expensive and not necessarily effective. But looking at the fiber melt wood chip product that we have and all other things are driven by this very topic, by pollution. And we need to get in front of this. The only way I can see getting in front of this is through education. Mm -hmm. The motoring public has to be more understanding that you cannot... Steer with your knees, drink your coffee, talk on the cell phone, and drive in a snowstorm. And with selfie 60, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at 60 miles an hour. So um, people need to leave earlier. They need to slow down and they, they need to show courtesy uh, to other drivers. And this, this, from my perspective, is the best, fastest way to reduce the impact of excessive de-icer use. Mm-hmm. Tell people just don't don't be so demanding. And they, somebody crashes, they want to blame somebody other than themselves. Ah, oh, the road was solid ice. Well, what did you think it was gonna be? It's freezing, it's freezing rain. Did you did you expect the road would be something other than slick? So why were you driving at that speed? And so it really is uh I think education can go a huge way towards uh, getting in front of this problem and putting putting less pressure on dpws and snow fighters mm-hmm. uh, so we've seen your legislative uh, watch people have you know pointed to multiple years of slip and fall lawsuits and tried to say well the snow put the pile up there and the runoff came down and created an icy condition well where's he supposed to put the snow pile yeah. and you know, what do you think when you look down and see icy pavement? Don't you think you should walk around that? So I think education is is number one on that topic, Mike, and uh trying to get people to be more reasonable, more patient, and more understanding. Uh then at the same time, uh Washington State University have a very active research group that are searching for alternatives. Uh they are there's a professor there, believe, and I'll probably mispronounce it, I believe his name is Xing Xiao Ming, a uh, guy's very bright, has been doing this for a dozen years that I'm aware of, mm-hmm. and uh, took over what was formerly the Pacific Northwest Snow Fighters uh, standard for certifying the icing products, and mm-hmm. now it's getting a little more science behind it, which is great. It's great for the industry, it's great for people, uh, there's no downside to that, so... We're working hard. Everybody's working hard to find the silver bullet. But in the meantime, we still have to keep the roads open, keep commerce moving and keep things safe. So, but it's again, going back to education, educating the applicator that, okay, this is a little more horsepower. We're going to use less to do the same job. If somebody takes a fall on a surface that that guy just de-iced, his neck is in the noose. So it's a classic case of, a, well, if a little does a good job, a lot will do better. We've really got to work hard as a society to improve things. Uh, you look at Europe, it's got a population pretty similar to the United States, you know, a road network that's not that much smaller. And uh, they use one third of the de-icers that we use because it, they, they take a very more accepting approach of winter and winter driving. We've got a, it's not my fault mentality uh, as a, as a society that is sort of leading people to to irresponsible behavior in winter driving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and added to that, I'm convinced it's the cover my butt attitude along with that, because I know something that we've written about and, and addressed with contractors. It's trying to, and you talked about education and it's trying to educate property owners and property managers that you don't need um, to hear the crunch when you walk into the building to know that you've been treated and that the, the ICER is working. And uh, I think you know, we need to ha- educate the property owners who will educate their people that you know, not only do you need to make smart decisions at footwear and you know, and how to walk over these you know, surfaces when you do have an event, but that these things are being treated and you don't need to hear that crunch.
1: Well, uh, truer words were never spoken. The other thing is that this excessive application in the approach entrance areas in public facilities, those deicers get tracked into the building. So, what does anybody think will happen as deicers uh, with chlorides in them fall into elevator mechanical systems and doorways, and you see doors rotted out? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, the, again, this excessive use. Uh, has infrastructure damage that is that is very significant. So yeah, the, we, we really need to find ways to use less product, use a, an appropriate product on uh, given surfaces, whether it's a, a walkway, an elevated walkway, structural parking garages, or another area where we've had garage collapses. And a lot of that, they want to, they want to, Try and say, well, they use the wrong deicer. But if you think about it, if you get thousand cars a day in a in a stacked parking garage, imagine how much salt is stuck to the bottom of those cars as it melts and falls on the floor of that garage.
0: Right, and, and all right.
1: those yeah, all those chlorides get in there. So I'm not entirely convinced that the deicing operations on the roof of that structure uh, led to the collapse. There's a there's a lot more moving parts and deicing than removing snow
0: all right final thought what could throw a monkey wrench into this winter from a um, salt and deicing side what do you what do you think
1: if we get into a situation uh, that we saw in the northeast and uh, the spring of 2015 where we had a few inches of snow every three days for 60 days uh, that just will consume every grain of uh, deicing product out there and so weather pattern I said earlier we talked about Ice And with these warmer weather patterns, there's a much higher uh, opportunity and likelihood of ice storms. If an ice storm is consuming five times what a snowstorm consumes, and we have three or four ice storms in a short window of time, that will throw a huge monkey wrench into supply. You know, at that point, decisions have to be made about critical components. We, we have to keep highways open. So that's when they, the potential for the government coming in and taking over stockpiles and denying contractors and private industry anything, directing all of that to public safety and uh, public works. That, that potential is always there. I think a warm another warm winter without snow, I uh, could take some players out. Mm-hmm. And that, too, may not hurt us this year, but going forward, it, it could bring some challenge uh, if the number of people that can participate in the market are fewer. So we've had, we've had a lot of participation uh, where water delivery is available because of these cheap ocean freight rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing uh, all kinds of salt from North Africa over as far as uh, Pakistan and India. Mm -hmm. Um, we've seen salt from Australia reach the United States. Wow. So, yeah, so it's, it, it's interesting. And, uh, there are lots of ways in which product can get here, uh, but you have to have a place to put it and you have to have someone that can bring that to market. So getting it here is only one piece of the puzzle.